The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I hope you picked up on a theme in the service so far. Any of you guys following that theme uh, that we've had? Something about a king and this idea of a king uh, who rules, a king who is sovereign, a king who uh, gets to make all the rules in a kingdom It's not a democracy. We don't get to vote him or out of power. We don't get to choose whether we uh, want him to rule. But God in this kingdom is king. And with that comes incredible privileges. We talked about covenant. That God has covenanted himself to us and said that I am your God. You will be my people. And in the midst of that, he has made promises to us to protect us, to keep us, to defend us, to bless us, uh, to enable us through his power and his spirit to live the lives that he's called us to and to ultimately deliver us to the promised land that is to Eden, to heaven itself. In the meantime, he said, now there are stipulations and there are rules uh, that you have to follow in order to maintain this relationship. And so today, what we're looking at is really the king's law. Uh, We're looking at the king's stipulations for how it is that we're supposed to live within his kingdom. For if we are Christians, it's interesting, as Americans, as or to be more precise, as North Americans, I was doing some mission work down in Argentina on several different occasions, and I remember introducing myself as an American, and one pastor took great offense, and he says, you're a Norte Americano. He says, you're a North American. I'm South American, but we're both American in that. I realized, oh, that's true. And I also realized something. The laws of Argentina, both especially the laws of driving, are very different from the laws of driving in the States. And so when I tried to live according to my law in their country, it didn't work very well uh, in that way because we're governed by the laws uh, of, our, of our nationality, our citizenship. Uh, that's how we are governed. Well, we are Americans, and so we're governed by the laws of the state. But as Christians, there is a higher law There is a law that goes beyond the civil law. We're to obey the civil law, and we're to honor our civil authorities, even in the passage that we're going to look at today. It says, don't even speak ill of them. Some of you just need to repent right now. Uh, that's, that's enough right there. It, it says you shouldn't revile them. It, says, it doesn't mean you can't disagree with them, but it says you should show them the due respect of their office. And so we have these civil laws and civil authorities, but there is a king who is over that. It says that the Lord is the king of all of the governments of the world, and he turns kings uh, in the palm of his hand like streams in the palm of his hand. And so we who say our citizenship is not of this world, but our citizenship is of heaven, then we have to ask the question, what are the laws then of our land? What are the laws that we are governed by? What, What are those principles and those ethics that inform our lives as Christians in the world. And so what we're going to look at this week is we're picking up on our series of looking at redemption's journey. We're going to be looking most particularly at the end of chapter 20, uh, moving on through chapter 23. Obviously, if I was to read that entire section of scripture for you, I would end the reading, say amen, and we'd move to the table. So I'm not going to read all of that. 
But what I do want you to see, uh, I'm going to read particular passages and parts of that to give you a flavor uh, for it. And then what we're going to notice is a couple of things by way of introduction. One, the law of Israel, the law given by God at Sinai to Moses, who was a mediator. The people at the end of chapter 20 had basically said, we've had enough of hearing God's voice. It's too overwhelming for us. So Moses, you go up on the mountain now, let God speak to you, and you come down and tell us. It was like it was in my home. My father had a big voice. And when he spoke, it would somehow travel in the front door, take the right turn through the den, take a left turn up the stairs, veer to the right. My room was up on the right. Somehow get through my door and penetrate right in the lower part of my brain stem and would straighten me up. And I knew I didn't like my dad's big voice. And so I used my sister, the good sister. I was the one who you only heard about in prayer meetings, you know, and pray for Billy. Uh, But my sister was the good daughter. And so I would say, would you mediate? Would you go talk to dad? Would you go and you get his, his commands, you get his information and bring it back to me because I can't handle standing in the presence of dad. That's generally what was happening here. All the people, a million Israelites are gathered around at the base of Sinai. There's thunder and lightning. There's earthquake. There's shaking. There's smoke. There's all of this stuff. It's the voice of God thundering from heaven. And they've heard the Ten Commandments. And they go, okay, Moses, we can't handle this anymore. You go talk to God and bring us back what he says. And so that's where we are at the end of chapter 20. And now the people are listening and they're hearing the law given to them and explained a little further. They've already got the Ten Commandments, right? But now God is going, let me let me unpack them for you. Let me let you understand a little more fully what this means. And the law of God given at Sinai was a massive progression in jurisprudence in that day of the ancient Near East. That there was a movement of law that was now happening that hadn't happened in Hammurabi's code. Uh, It hadn't happened in any of the other codified law codes of the ancient Near East, and there were others uh, during that day and age. And so this is a movement now uh, of something even more. It was a movement of an idea, even of, uh, you would maybe have heard it as the lex talionis, the the eye for an eye, that if you kill somebody, you're going to get killed. If you take an eye, you lose an eye. If you cut off a hand, you get the hand cut off. Well, God took that truth and said, yes, but it has to be understood within the context of who I am, that the crime has to fit the punishment and that there's discretion given that in the Hammurabi code, it would be that if you stole a sheep, uh, then you would have your life taken from you. That somehow the life of a sheep was equal with the life of an individual. And God said, that's out of sorts, that there should be some restitution uh, for a sheep. Uh, that is stolen, but not at the level of a life. A human life has more dignity and value than that of a sheep. And so there was a movement, a progression uh, in this idea of law that was taking place. Now, what you're going to find as you begin to read this section, and I'm assuming that all of you read this section, right? This week, you couldn't wait to have your private devotions because you opened up into chapter 20 and you realized the very first thing it talked about was, now don't build an altar uh, out of hewn stones, but only out of earthen stones and stack it in a way and make sure that when you go up to that altar, uh, you don't go up on steps because you see men wore robes at that time and it was not to expose themselves as they went up on a step. And so there was modesty that was in there and you went, oh, this applies to my life this week. 
And then you read the second part that was about slaves. And then you read and you were like, slavery? Oh my gosh. This can't be. And then you went and you just were reading and feeding on this this week, right? Sure. Not a chance. And what I found too about this section is that very few, if any, devotionals even touch on it. It's most interesting to go ahead and jump from the Ten Commandments and move on over to chapter 24 for the ratification of the covenant because that's where you really see Christ in the middle of it. And we just skip these three incredible chapters, but we're going to spend just today in them because what I want you to get and to see is to be careful of two opposite and polar extremes that take place within the church. One is we try to apply these laws as they are to the civil government today, and that's wrong. The government of today is not the government of a theocracy that is of God as the king over Israel. And we cannot and will not take these laws that are given to us and slap them down on our country and say, this is how it should be. At the same point, we can't cherry pick these laws and say that these laws have absolutely nothing uh, to do with our lives today. That they're ancient and they're archaic and they were written for a time and a people who were more primitive than I am and we're more advanced and therefore we can't gain anything from them. And so we're going to be careful of these two extremes. And what we're going to look at today and we're going to ask this question is really what does it mean to live in light of God's law? To live in light of God's law. With that in mind, uh, let's pray for God's blessing on this time. Lord, we pray now that you would take your word and you would bless it, that you would set it apart, you would speak to us through it by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand uh, these things and that we would know uh, you in all uh, of your power and goodness. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read a couple of sections uh, for you in here. And I want you just to listen and to try as best you can to apply them to your particular situation. And the Lord said to Moses, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 20, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven, and you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make uh, for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. And if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be the masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of a, or a doorpost and his master shall bore his ear with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Hmm. Flip over to chapter to verse 17. Whoever curses his father and his mother shall be put to death. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Hmm. 
Chapter 22. Ah, this makes much more sense. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and struck uh, and stuck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Maybe verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit sorceresses to live, and whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Hmm. Chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going, going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it for him. You see, all of these laws seem odd to us. They seem strange. Because if you look at these sections, you'll find that there are laws in here that are concerning worship, the beginning of chapter 20, or the end of chapter 20. You'd see at the beginning of chapter 21 that there are laws that are concerning slaves and how it is that you're to manage your household with slaves. And one thing that you need to understand first, the Hebrew language has no word for slave as we understand the word slave. They have no word for slave uh, that would have been experienced in Europe or in uh, America as it was being founded. This word is the word bondservant. This is a servant who was indentured. It's an indentured servant. And for some, they went in willingly. For others, they had debt and they would go and sell themselves. Uh, for others, they had no money. The poor or impoverished, uh, they would give their child uh, to a wealthy family to work uh, and to be in there. But there was no concept within the Hebrew nation of the continuality or lifelong slavery that you would have understood uh, in America in its formative years or in Europe. Because you notice in this, I didn't read it, but you would notice that the slave was to work six years, the servant six years to pay off its debt. And at the end of the sixth year, there would be a year of jubilee and the servant would be set free, that all debts would be considered paid and they would be gone. So there was no lifetime of servanthood. And so you need to understand that because it's a massive misconception within the Christian faith uh, that the Bible uh, acknowledges and says that it's okay to have slaves. So there's rules for slavery. Uh, at the very beginning. Then if you begin, look in chapter 21, later on, you see that there are rules concerning behavior of intentional versus unintentional homicide, relationships to parents, the sanctity of human life and the image of God, permanent injuries, injuries associated with animals. Those make great sense to us. That if you have an ox and it's known to be a mean and mad ox and it goes and spears your neighbor, uh, then you are uh, culpable for the crime of the ox. That fits this week for you, correct? 
You go, I Bill, that doesn't make any sense. So we're going to move on. So there's laws that concern restitution. How is it that you're supposed to pay back someone that you hurt? Laws concerning holiness, chapter 22, 16 to 20. And then there's this very interesting section in chapter 22, 21 to 23, 9 that speaks of social justice. It speaks of the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless, of compassion for the poor. And then finally, it ends with the Sabbath rules uh, and laws and the laws of the festivals, the three main festivals of Israel. And so this is the breakdown. And we don't have time to go through each of these sections, but what I want you to see this morning, what we're going to touch on in the time we have, are two main things. The first thing is this. These were laws of ethics. If you have ever lived with someone, maybe in a roommate situation, you realize that there had to be some house rules. If you have more than one person living in your home, you've got to have house rules, uh, ways of how you're going to live and maintain a decorum uh, together. Think about a million Hebrews living together in the desert. And God was saying, this is how we're going to live together. These are the ethics of our culture. So the first point that I want you to understand is this. Our theology, our theology, it has to inform our ethics. Our theology informs our ethics. What we believe informs and enlightens what we do, how we live our lives. And the second thing that we're going to see is this, very simply, that true biblical holiness is concerned with every area of our lives, the public and the private. That true biblical holiness is concerned with every area of our lives. So the first point, our theology informs our ethics. One writer put it this way, there is an organic and intrinsic connection between our theology and our ethics. To know Yahweh, to know God, the great I am, to know who he is, to know what he has done, has to come first, and it has to then lead us and inform how we live our lives, the way that we live, the way that we understand. We've talked about it this way in the past. The indicative has to precede the imperative, right? You remember English class, right? You remember public speaking. The indicative has to precede the imperative. Here's how that works in a family situation. Son, I'm your father. I am your father. I provide for this home. You are a wonderful blessing to your mother and to me. And we are so glad that you're here. That's the indicative, right? I'm the father. You're a part of this family. We love you. Three indicatives in that part. Now, go clean your room. The imperative. Oftentimes we start with an imperative. Go do this. And we don't understand why we're being asked to do that. We don't have any information that informs the imperative, the ethic, that we're supposed to do this. I've talked to public school teachers. And one of the great difficulties of being a public school teacher is this. When a child comes and is lying or cheating, and they press you and say, why is it wrong for me to lie or to cheat? And you say, because it is the imperative, you shouldn't cheat. Well, why? Because it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? 
Because it is. Unless you can give a greater indicative that there is a God who stands over all things and is full truth and demands and has to have truth within a society for that society to flourish, therefore you shouldn't cheat and lie. But if all truth is relative, therefore the application of all truth is relative, and I can cheat and lie and steal and progress my way through life and do whatever I want to do because there's no indicative that informs me. Do you understand and see? Well, that's what God's saying here. So let's think for a second on some of these imperatives. You should take care of your slaves. You should pay for a lost sheep. Uh, you should go and you should take care of the sojourner who's in your midst. You should take care of the foreigner. You should look after the widows. You should take care of the orphan. You should not walk upstairs uh, in such a way uh, that you would expose your indecency to anybody else. Uh, that you shouldn't hewn rocks and smooth them out for your altar uh, and do that. All of these shoulds and shouldn'ts that go. And you go, I don't understand why. This just sounds like a bunch of rules to me. And for some of you, that's how you view the Christian life. It's a bunch of rules. Well, what you're looking at is the imperative and you've gotten it backwards. What we need to look now is at the indicative for just a moment. In Hammurabi's Hammurabi's code, do you know where the conversation about slaves and the treatment of slaves was? It was at the very end. Isn't it interesting that in God's code, it's at the very beginning. Why? Because God's indicative is this you were once slaves you were once foreigners in a foreign land you were once powerless you were once without rights without a voice the objects of wrath you were once these things but I God rich in mercy have rescued you from Egypt have led you out of the house of bondage have destroyed your oppressors I've led you now towards the promised land now therefore because of who you once were because of who I am take care of the foreigner in your midst care for the poor Look after the widow. Make sure that those who have nothing have something in your economy and society. Does that make sense? Because now you see why we're doing these things. Why should you take care of the poor? Not just because you were once poor. Why should you care about the woman who is pregnant and you strike her and she gives birth? What does that matter? Well, God is saying, I believe in the sanctity of human life, all human life of the born and of the unborn. And the reason that I do, you see, oh, yeah, there we go. The abortion sermon. I've been waiting for four years, McCutcheon, for the abortion sermon. This isn't the abortion sermon. This is the sermon that says this. All life, born and unborn, is cared for by God. Why? Because he says, all are created in my image. It is the imago Dei, the indicative of that truth that all of life is precious and is in his image that we care for any life. And we care for all life equally, male and female. Interesting how many of these statutes deal with women. You ever thought about that? This was pre-women's rights movements, by the way. Uh, This was pre-suffrage. This was pre-anything. And God wrote right in the middle of it. In any other code, a woman could be killed, thrown away, and no one would say the least of it. 
But God says here, if there's a woman slave, someone, here's how this would work. If I have a daughter and I have no money, and I know that my daughter is going to be impoverished the entirety of her life, out of love for my daughter, I would give her to a wealthy family. And I would say, let her be a bond servant to you, that she would earn a wage, and that they would adopt her basically as their daughter, and that she would have rights and privileges and food and clothing and protection. And maybe the husband, maybe the man in that family would take her as his wife, but maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would decide that I'm going to give this girl to one of my sons, that she would be a daughter in that way. And let's say that that was the arrangement. And then all of a sudden, the son decides, I'm more of a blonde guy, not a brunette, sorry. Don't want to go with her anymore. And she's left there. Most cultures would say, do with her whatever you want. God said, free her. She has intrinsic rights as an individual and a human being because she's in my image. Provide for her. Take care of her and free her because you have broken your commitment. Take care of her. Isn't that amazing? Instead of getting caught on the word slavery, oh, how could this happen? See the beauty of how God was dealing with people. And then to take this into our lives today, what does that mean for us today? Here's what it means for us today. Everyone that we come in contact with, Everyone who is sitting around you, everyone who lives on this island, who lives in Bluffton, everyone has an intrinsic value and worth. And because they have that value and worth based not on what they've done, not on what they add to society, not on what they add to culture, but because they were born and made in the image of God, that we care for them and love them and look out for their needs. Do you think that will inform our ethic? We're about to go move into, folks, it's an absolutely beautiful facility that you're going to get to see in a couple of weeks. It really is. Currently, there are no marks on the walls. There are no spills on the carpet. Uh, it is perfect and pristine. The parking lot is smooth. Uh, it has gorgeous plants. But you know what? If the reality that God wrote in his law to care for the poor and the unnourished and the widow and those who could never, ever afford a place like this. If we drive into this facility and we celebrate our times together and we have our holy huddles and we do our thing and we circle around and we say, hey, Jesus is awesome. And you drive back and I drive back to my community and I live there and I never once meet a person who lives on Marshland. I never meet, once meet a person who lives on Gumtree. I never once go back down one of the dirt roads that's still unpaved in our communities to people who don't have public water service or sewer. If we don't do any of that, then we have missed it. We have missed it. The beauty of who God is and how he provides for us has to inform our ethic. It has to inform us to the point of going against even good business principles and practices. One of the ways that God is saying of the poor person in here, it's a very interesting law. He says, hey, you should have surety, meaning this. If I'm going to go to the bank and get a loan, the bank is going to ask me for something. They're not going to say, well, Bill, you're a nice looking guy. Uh, you seem pretty nice. Here's $30,000. 
They're going to look and they're going to say, oh, you have a house. Your house has this value. Your house has this much equity in it. We'll give you a loan commiserate with the equity that you have. It's called a home equity line of credit. But it's based on my home. Well, God was saying, that's okay. That's fine. But if you come to a poor man who has one cloak and he needs to borrow money from you and you lend him the money and you take his cloak as surety and you realize that's his only cloak, At night, give him back his cloak so he doesn't freeze. Make a bad business decision in order to take care of the needs of somebody else. Sometimes the equations of return on investment don't work out in compassion ministries. What Jeff and Becky Peters are doing in Haiti does not add up dollars and cents wise. It doesn't. But you know what? By investing in a family... And somehow loving a mom and dad. And somehow thinking that maybe they could love their children differently. And give their children a different future and a different thing. Then that can affect generations. And then through that generations. But it's going to cost an awful lot of money to do that. Peter and I talk about his son John who's over in Japan. You know what's the most expensive place in the world to do mission work? Tokyo. And it costs an awful lot of money to do work in Tokyo. It's not a good investment. But God says forget the investment part. We're reaching lives for Christ and doing that. So there's an ethic that's driven in the middle of this that I want you to see and to understand. That you're a consecrated people. Chapter 22, verse 31. That the Lord is compassionate God. That you were formerly slaves. That you were formerly aliens and outsiders. You were formerly orphans. But God, rich in mercy, redeemed you in that way. Your theology has to inform your ethic of why you do what you do or why you don't do what you don't do. The last thing, briefly and quickly, is this. True biblical holiness is concerned with every area of our lives, public and private. Did you catch the sequence of how all of this worked out as you were reading through this this week and outlining it in your own notes? Sexual impurity followed by laws about sorcery, followed by laws about bestiality, followed by laws about idolatry, compassion for the poor, blasphemy, tithes and offerings, eating the meat of an animal killed by other animals, followed by lying and false testimony, followed by being kind to an enemy, and so on. There is absolutely no pattern that's given there. It moves from public to private life, from private life to public life, to this, that, and the other. What's God trying to communicate? Here's what God's trying to communicate. The law affects every part of your life. You don't get to say, I'll go with these and I won't go with those. But there is a totality to the law of God. There is a fullness to the law of God, uh, which is saying this. It informs every bit of you. Some of you read this and, and you want to go out and pick up a picket and you want to stand and go, see, we should stand in front of abortion clinics and, and we should bring them to the ground. And you have no private devotional life at all. Others of you look at the worship part and go, oh, I honor the Sabbath. I am a good Sabbatarian and I don't work on the Sabbath. I don't mow my grass on the Sabbath. Uh, I go to church on the Sabbath. I have my quiet time on the Sabbath. I even knew a man who had Sabbath toys for his friend, or for his children, that they could only play with these toys on the Sabbath. And everything was about the Sabbath. But you don't care for the poor. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to take some and not all. But there is a totality to the law which influences, impacts, and informs all of our lives. 
Part of the reason I believe that the church, our church, other churches in America has lost its witness is because we have decided to either be all private or all public and inconsistent in both of those. But God is calling us to a consistency of social justice and personal piety, of care for the community in which we live and care for our own soul. That we are the person who says, I will not speak ill of my leaders in the world because I know that that bears witness to me. Uh, That I'm going to be incredibly compassionate to people that I disagree with. Folks, this applies to every area, and I'm going to apply it to one in particular. Social media. The Christian church needs to be really, really careful with social media. We come across as bitter and hateful and uninformed and damning and all of those things. For the articles that are posted and the statements that are written, we look like a bunch of drunks because of all the pictures that we put up there of our parties and of our beer and of our wine. Uh, we look sexually charged because of all of the different things that there's no modesty. You want to know why God said for the man not to go up uh, onto the stairs uh, without being covered and later in Leviticus, it actually says of the priest, it was a new invention back then. I'm not trying to be gross. Underwear was a new invention because they said, we want you to be modest in your life. Our public witness on social media and otherwise, it impacts how the world views us. So what this is saying is be consistent in all of that. All right, here's where we'll end. Chapter 24, they just heard all of this stuff. And here's what the people said. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How you doing this week so far? Man, I'm messing up already. All the words that you have spoken, we will do. Folks, you can't do all of this. The law of God is too consuming. It is too overwhelming. It is asking for too much that any one individual person could ever do except one individual person, Jesus Christ. You know what this section gives to us is a desperate need of Christ to come. And today, that's where we come. We come to a table that when God said there's going to be a Passover feast, Christ said, I know, and I'm going to be there. And in that ratification of the covenant in chapter 24, it says that blood was spilled and half of the blood was taken and poured upon the altar as a sacrifice. And the other half was sprinkled upon the people to cover them and say, listen, you say that you're going to obey, but I know you won't and you're going to need a savior. So strive for perfection, but in your imperfection, come to Christ. So let's prepare now and come to this table. Father, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us Christ and that he is the perfect obedience of all of the law. Father, as we consider your law, we realize that we cannot in any way, shape or form perfectly obey it. And so we have to plead Christ and him only. So Lord, now come. And bless us with your presence. To Christ be the glory. Amen.